Section 62 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T.J. Burns. The World's Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. Edited by Eva March Toppin. Section 62. The Music of the Desert. Latter Part of the Nineteenth Century by Gilbert Watson The long afternoon was drawing to a close. The sun was on the point of leaving us. In half an hour it would be dark. For in these lands of the south there is but little afterglow. No lingering twilight drains the lifeblood, drop by crimson drop, from out the veins of day. She is radiant, smiling to the last golden moment. Then, of a sudden, she swoons. The sun god has her in his clutches. His burning arms are around her. In fiery haste, he plunges with her behind the dark horizon. For a minute, there is an agony of dying color. Far continents leap into flame. Then, peace. For lo, a star already twinkles in the sky, and what is even more remarkable is the silence. In northern lands, there are so many audible indications of approaching night, but in the desert, nothing. The tyrant's sun has killed all sound, beaten it down with fierce, reiterated blows until it lies as lifeless as the sand. The silence is deep unbroken. It enters into your bones. It weighs upon your spirits. It becomes a living presence, a power to be reckoned with. Slowly we climbed rise after rise and wound our way into the intervening valleys. The track had ceased to be a road. The ruts of wheels had stopped at Sidi Okapa, and only a stony channel such as might well be mistaken for a watercourse, remained to indicate our line of march. The monotony was unbroken, yet it was full of fascination. The sun, sinking slowly, still deluged the world with light. The wind still swept over the wide expanse. The sand still drifted like golden smoke across our track. Suddenly. I was awakened out of a brown study by the sound of Othman's flute. The dying sunlight streaming past me fell full upon him. His blue burnous, fallen from his shoulders, draped the hindquarters of his camel. The scarlet lining of his jacket and the warm red of his fez glowed hot in the sun. His eyelids, semi-closed, revealed the dreaming blackness of his eyes. Mechanically, his fingers moved over the stops. The air which he played fascinated me. It was wild, barbaric, unfamiliar, full of unexpected turns and sudden inexplicable changes. Heard thus, as we swayed through the sunset, it unconsciously associated itself in the listener's mind, not only with the forms of things visible, but also with the influence of things unseen. There were notes of invitation, low, inarticulate calls, 
that were the voice of the horizon. There were breathless gasps, sound beaten down by exhaustion that suggested weary marches over desert sands. There were passages full of dreams that whispered of longing for that which always lay beyond. And through it all, linking sound to sound, ran a thrill of emotion, a soft but imperative call that reminded one of spring. With a smile at my too vivid fancy, I essayed to curb my imagination, to think of the music but as an assemblage of unmeaning sounds. The effort was unsuccessful. What music is that? I asked in a low voice. It is the music of the dancing girls, Sidi, but not of Biskara. No, of the far south. Dans le désert du Grand Sahara. His words chimed well with the melody. Instinctively, I strained my eyes toward the south. There, where sky and desert met in a golden haze, my thoughts flew like hummingbirds into the unknown. How full of fascination it seemed! How impregnated with mystery! How alluring! How barbaric! Might it not be, as Othman suggested, the birthplace of passion? hot and unrestrained as its sun. I learned it long ago, Sidi. He paused to jerk his camel from a bush. I have never forgotten it. I love it for its own sake, not because it reminds me of dancing girls. They bore me. You are surprised, Sidi? You think an Arab and not to love dancing girls? But it is true. My friend Hamel who is dead, mocked me often. But you understand, I am a poet. He drew himself up with a gesture of much dignity. Fatma, for example, was beautiful. But there was no imagination in her dancing. No grace, only contortions. Now this. He played a bar with expression that was all but passionate. This is altogether different. This excites me. Did Fatma dance to that air? I asked. No, Sidi, never. Her music was quite ordinary. What one may hear any day in the cafes. I have never seen anyone dance to this music. I sometimes think it is lost. Lost? I cried. But yes, perhaps I am the only one. Who can play it now? Who knows? An aged man taught it to me under the palms of Zayoyat Riba. He came from the south. Unexpectedly, he came out of the desert. And unexpectedly, he went back to it. No one knew aught of him. He told me that this music was an old, old air. Born in the sun. But long ago, when the world was young, beautiful women have danced to it, but they are all dead. To dance as one should to this music, one should have feet light as moonbeams, and a soul full of melody. And, voyez-vous, such a woman is difficult to find. The old man feared 
that it would die. It was so very old. So, finding that I could play on the flute, he taught it to me. Then, one morning, he went away towards the south. I watched him go with tears in my eyes. He never came back. No. I looked for him often when the sun sunk behind the palms, but I never saw him again. Never. Othman sighed. A small brown bird flew unexpectedly from under a bush. His camel raised a startled head and snarled faintly. Again, Othman turned to me. Sidi, he cried in a voice of enthusiasm. How I wish you had heard him. He played. Ah, yes, he played. It was like water running in the moonlight. Your soul ran with it. I, do you see, I play. I amuse myself with the flute, but it is a bagatelle, a nothing. Poofed. He blew on his bunched fingertips as though he were blowing a feather into the air. Then, becoming serious, he waved an arm towards the south. It is strange, he murmured, half to himself. This music. One would say that it has a soul, the soul of the desert. Not here, but there, far away. Le-bas, Yes, that is it. To me, it is the voice of the South. I started. How strange it seemed to hear my unspoken thoughts returning to me from Othman's lips. His words awoke memories. I, too, had felt something of the feelings that swayed him. I, too, had heard the self-same voice luring me ever farther towards the South, as though it were a living presence, a something tangible, a hand drawing one irresistibly sunwards. I had all but forgotten my surroundings when they snatched me back from dreamland by a strain of music. I started in amazement, yet there was no mistaking the sounds. It was the music of the southern dancing girls, the music that Othman loved. I listened, wondering. How often had I heard it? On the march, in the camp beneath the palms, in the night watches. It seemed strange to hear it in this café, played by other fingers for I associated it with Othman and had come to look upon it as peculiarly his own. His hand clutched my arm. Sidi, he cried, you hear, you hear my music. His face shone with excitement. His eyes expressed wonder and pleasure. With his disengaged hand, he kept time to the melody. I turned to the orchestra. The tom-tom players were still there but the negro had given place to an old man. He was seated cross-legged on the dais, a little in advance of the other musicians. He had the air of a wizard. His turban and robes were black and presented a striking contrast to his silvery hair and thin white beard. Age had set her seal on him in many wrinkles, in shrunken frame and toothless gums. But the fire of enthusiasm burned still within his eyes. 
deep sunken though they were, and overshadowed by eyebrows coarse and white as frosted thatch. His hands twitching on the stops of the flute resembled vultures' claws. It was plain to the least observant that his whole being lived and breathed in the music. At times he swayed violently in sudden jerks, as though shaken by strong, invisible hands. Mon Dieu, it is he, exclaimed Othman. Who? I demanded, but even as I spoke, I remembered. This could be none other than the old man who had taught Othman the melody under the palms of Zawiyat Rabah long ago. The old man who he had fancied dead because he had lost sight of him during the busy days at Biskra. How strange that they should meet here at Taugurt after the lapse of so many years. I was about to speak again when a woman appeared in the doorway and in the interest which she created, the words died upon my lips. She stood framed between the palm tree logs, motionless, the light of the torches flashing upon her, the starlight seen above and beyond encircling her head in a faint white radiance. Then, as the flute screamed a wild and imperious note of invitation, she moved slowly forward. The Arabs, seated in dusky rows, turned to watch her. Their faces betrayed deep but dignified interest. Two chess players ceased their game. One of them pushed the board away with his naked toes, resettled his turban upon his head, and leaned against the wall. His eyes were semi-closed, but singularly alert. They resembled the eyes of a cat watching a mouse. Aspahi, seated on a bench at a little distance, paused in the act of raising his coffee cup to his lips and drew his comrade's attention to her with a gesture. One man alone spoke to her. He was standing within the shadow margin of the door, but as she passed, he stepped into the light, and I knew him for a Bedouin, a wild-looking figure, clad in rags. In spite of the dissimilarity of costume, there was that in the general characteristics of both man and woman that told of a common origin, and I found myself wondering if they were members of the same desert tribe. As she passed, he spoke to her rapidly, almost with ferocity. I caught the glitter of his teeth. She answered with a gesture of little moment, for her expression did not alter. Neither did she pause. The man stood for a second motionless, petrified, gazing after her with the eyes of a dumb animal quivering under a blow. Then, tossing his arms over his head, he sunk once more into shadow. The old man seated on the dais caught sight of her. His eyes glowed with extraordinary fire. His meager body swayed violently. His music sprang to fresh life. A number of wild notes made themselves heard, cried out, screamed with insistent clamor, passed and repassed as it were before our eyes, now singly, now together, uneasy, restless, hungering, impatient, as caged animals waiting to be fed. The tom-toms throbbed in unison, monotonous and muffled, yet quick and breathless, 
as though the wild music had a heart whose beating could not be stilled by the passion in its voice. The stir of expectation increased. It passed over the spectators as a gasp of desert wind passes over sultry sand. Conversation ceased. Coffee cups were set down, and two of the dancing girls whose voices had been raised in altercation were admonished angrily by the Negro proprietor. The woman paused at the far end of the hall, turned to the vacant space across which she had but that moment moved, and raised her arms above her head in the attitude of one who listens. Her appearance evaded description. Yet though her wild beauty baffled words, it remained in the watcher's mind an imperishable memory. One trait alone, more definite than the others, occurs to me now. Gracefulness. Every movement told of physical perfection, of faultless balance, of beautiful limbs obedient to an unerring sense of rhythm. To watch her was a pleasure akin to watching wind-blown grass or waves dancing in the sunlight. She wore many ornaments. Her slender wrists and ankles were encircled with bands of massive silver. Upon her head there rested a small golden crown, and depending from her neck were chains of golden coins. Her costume was savage in its lust for bright colors in its scarlet and green and gold. Yet seen thus, in the yellow light against the dusky background, and surrounded on all sides by silent sheeted figures, it struck home to a sense of appropriateness. Not otherwise could one imagine her. The effect was barbaric, but it was Africa. The flute cried to her with angry impatience. She began to dance. Her movements were sinuous and slow. The flexibility of her body was remarkable. The performance was full of beauty, yet it was a beauty that verged upon the uncanny. One felt as though this gliding, undulating figure were half snake, half woman, holding her audience spellbound by the force of supernatural charms. Her dancing differed wholly from that of the dancer who had preceded her. Here were no contortions, no jerking of the muscles, no posturing that offended the taste. And yet, in the very refinement of her attitudes lay danger, a danger more subtle in that it was more cunningly veiled than that of her companion. And yet, with all her powers of seduction, she was no free agent, for one saw clearly that she was thrall to the music. Like the aged musician, she too lived but in this song of the South, this soul of the sun made audible. It dominated her completely, now sending her forth, now summoning her back, enmeshing her in melody, whispering to her in breathless notes, calling to her in low, seductive tones irresponsible as the first echoes of desire. Her naked feet passed inaudibly over the mud floor. Her hands riveted attention. They were small, with tapering fingers. The nails dyed bright red with henna. She held them before her, at arm's length, on a level with her eyes. They were never at rest, 
but turned and twisted ceaselessly, almost as though they were the hands of a swimmer cleaving deep water. At times they trembled, the fingers opening and closing convulsively, and again becoming rigid, they resumed their former monotonous movements. The dancer followed them with an air of one walking in her sleep, or like one blinded by the excess of light. Her face heightened the illusion. The eyes were open, but were sphinx-like in their arrested expression. The features composed, the mouth quiet. It was impossible to tell her thoughts. While she danced, the café was very still. The Arabs sat like dead men, save for the gleaming of their eyes. The place was animated only by the lights, the music, and the dreaming figure that came and went, silent as the shadow at its feet. A sudden movement at my side drew my attention to Othman. He was leaning forward, his clasped hands pinned between his knees. The torchlight fell upon his face. It was strangely moved. His lips slightly parted revealed the glitter of white teeth. His eyes followed the dancer's every movement with an expression that was half wonder, half fear, yet wholly fascination. Every line of his body bespoke tense, absorbing interest. He sat like a man under a spell. One would say that he had ceased to breathe. Our companions conversed, but he heard them not. By the prophet, she dances well, murmured Si Abdel Muammen languidly. Ugh, grunted Mabarka, sucking at her cigarette. Her voice grated on the ear like the cry of an angry jay. Ugh, call you that well? That is no dancing. A child could do better. Now I... Silence, cried a voice and a stout Arab, seated near a pillar, turned a reproving face in our direction. Mabarka grunted again, tossed her head in defiance, then, bidding us an ostentatious farewell, waddled through the inner doorway. Again, I turned to the dancer. The music had undergone a change. More than ever before, it breathed of sunlit space, of freedom, of wandering lives, of the love of the desert winds and desert suns, the indelible birthmark, seared deep within the heart of desert children. And as the music beat its invisible wings against the doors of imagination, there dawned within the listener's mind the possibility of understanding all, of becoming one for a time with the soul of mystery, of loneliness, and of light that lies far within the heart of the African sun. The dancer responded to the change. Her movements became languid. Her hands, held ever at arm's length, yearned towards this mirage of sound. Her naked feet essayed to follow. Her eyes were fixed on the mud and plaster walls, but she did not see them. She gazed beyond. For her, this café, with its sordid entertainment, its scuttering lights, its atmosphere of unwashed humanity was as though it were not. Her eyes, her wonderful dark eyes, coal-encircled, inscrutable wells of sultry light, depths of dreaming shadow, 
rested on something which we could not see, which we could only surmise to be one with the music, something far off, lost in the great quiet night that hemmed us in with its silence and its stars. And as the eyes followed her, one idea, vague, elusive, yet becoming every moment clearer, more insistent, grew within the watcher's mind. The desert. Aye, that was it. This woman was the personification of the desert. Her dance was its mystery made visible. She suggested to the imagination all that one loved and feared in its illimitable spaces. In her, one realized the existence of the same beauty, the same impassivity, the same sinister possibilities. Abruptly, the music ceased. A wave of relaxed attention, as of a taut bowstring suddenly released, passed over the café. The Arabs resettled themselves in postures of greater ease. Some called for coffee, some resumed interrupted conversations, and the two chess players turned again to their game. From the dancing girl's bench came the sound of giggling, a shrill, inane noise. The old musician seated on the dais stared round him with wide, unseen eyes. He had the helpless air of one snatched suddenly from dreamland. All at once, he sprang to his feet, hobbled rapidly towards the door, and disappeared into the moonlight of the court. The voice of the negro made itself heard above the buzz of conversation. Its tones were angry and loud. He was apparently scolding a servant. The light splashed the ugly walls with great gouts of uncertain color. It gave birth to a yellow haze, through which the café and its crowd of occupants wavered like the world in a drunkard's eye. The atmosphere reeked with the fumes of torches and the fetid odor of perspiration, mingling with the subtle scent of musk that carried the imagination captive with its suggestions of far-off land. How like you, Aisha? inquired the soft, languid voice of Si Abdelmuammen. I turned to him. He had addressed the question to Othman. Aisha, said my guide. He spoke in a wondering whisper. Between his lips, the southern name sounded soft as a caress. His eyes were still riveted on the dancer, who had now begun to collect money from the Arabs. But certainly, continued his friend, still speaking in the French language, she is a novelty. I have seen many dancers, as thou knowest, but never one like her. She has not been here long. They tell me she comes from far south, from the great Sahara. No one knows when she comes, or what is the name of her tribe. She came here unexpectedly one night with a caravan of Bedouins, accompanied by an old man. But did you say you liked her? Othman muttered something under his breath. I did not catch the words, but his tone sounded full of suppressed impatience, as though he were annoyed with this soft, self-satisfied voice for breaking the engrossing current of his thoughts. The dancer came nearer. Already several pieces of silver adhered to her forehead, attached thereto, as is the Arab custom, by the saliva of the donors. The white metal glittered like stars against the warm brown of her skin. 
Her movements were still suggestive of the gliding sinuosities of a snake or the stealthy grace of a panther. As she walked, she swayed slightly from the hips. An air of voluptuous indolence surrounded her like an atmosphere. The long chains of golden coins depending from her neck swung to her every movement. The crown surmounting her black hair flashed in the torchlight. It gave her a regal appearance, as though she were some desert queen exacting tribute from her subjects. Against the dirty plaster of the walls and the nondescript grays of the Arabs, her bright costume glowed like a tropical flower, a thing of hot color and intoxicating perfume. She reached Othman. Slowly she bent her head and looked him full in the eyes. With a hand that trembled visibly, my guide added his offering to those already attached to her forehead. Her face held me breathless. The music spell had fallen from it like a discarded mask and had given place to an alert, appraising vigilance that caused her eyes to gleam bright yet hard as sunlit steel. It was difficult to judge this woman dispassionately. Her beauty and marvelous grace unconsciously influenced the mind in her favor. Yet, as I looked into her face, admiration gave place to a feeling that was almost aversion. Vague, uneasy, unaccountable, caused perchance by the utter callousness of her expression and the absence of all the softer qualities that make for feminine charm. We sat silent, watching her as she glided between the rows of Arabs. The scarlet and gold of her draperies receded into the yellow haze, paused an instant where the torchlight fell upon the vacant space by the doorway, then passed out into the night. End of section 62 this recording is in the public domain. Recording by T.J. Burns.